percent, but the way that the schedule worked, it's the last one that we're doing. Um, I'm grateful to Sean for letting me preach this psalm when he asked which psalms I was interested in when we were planning the series. I immediately called dibs on this one, and he graciously let me. And uh, I love this psalm. I love it. And I'm not alone. Apparently, Martin Luther really liked it as well. Uh, He wrote the version of it that we sang earlier. And I imagine that in many ways, this psalm for Luther uh, was somewhat autobiographical and, and definitely resonated with him. It gave me quite a bit of a uh, crisis, a personal crisis, during studying for it and prepping for this sermon this week. Um, part of my sermon prep is it's just very plain and simple. It's just read the text a bazillion times and, and try to understand it and, and, and jot down lots of observations. Uh, if you were in the How to Study the Bible class uh, with us in the spring and in the summer. Um, I, I just do that. I, I read it and read it and read it and try to list down every observation I can and see what are the big pieces of the puzzle and how do they fit together. And so I did that. And then, again, practicing what I preached, then I turned to the commentaries. After I felt like I had a, a decent sense of what was going on here, then I opened up the commentaries. And so I opened up the very first one, and I opened it up first because on the last two psalms that I preached. It was rich and and valuable, and and it was very, very helpful. And so I opened it up, and then I got really confused because I'm reading in this commentary, and and the commentator is saying, what a wonderful psalm about suffering, about when God's people suffer, uh, and what to do with that, and what to make of it. And I was scratching my head, and I said, I don't think this is about suffering. Because I'd, I'd read it a bazillion times and made all these notes, and I really came away thinking that it was about sin and, and guilt and, and then the hope that comes on the other side of having worked through that. And so uh, I really wrestled and struggled and read it a bazillion more times and, and didn't do it lightly, but came away saying, well, gosh, I really disagree with this guy. you know, And, and I don't disagree with older, wiser people lightly, but I had to. Now, fortunately and very graciously, the last two commentaries that I read both came down decidedly on, hey, here, this is a psalm about guilt. It's a song about sin and guilt and hope. And one of the commentators, and this gave me a huge sigh of relief, even called out this first commentator by name and said, oh, so-and-so, he gets it wrong. He says it's about suffering, and it's not about suffering at all. It's about guilt. And so I was like, whew, thank goodness. Um, so there's the little crisis that, that I had with this psalm, um, you know, but I mentioned Luther, and, and apparently this really resonated with Luther because it is about guilt, and if you know the, the story of, of Martin Luther's conversion, he struggled greatly under a crushing load of guilt. It was almost his undoing. Until his eyes were opened up to the beauty of the gospel. And we're going to see all that in this psalm. Uh, It's a great psalm of ascent, actually, because it starts out with guilt and then ascends to a place of great hope and trust in the gospel. And so if you hear me saying, the psalm is about guilt, and you're thinking, ugh, you know, stab me in the eye or something, because that's the last thing I want to hear is something about guilt. I need to hear something uplifting and encouraging. Well, hang on, because it really is. It's a psalm about guilt that is so hopeful 
and so encouraging, and I want to try to prove that to you this morning. Psalm 130, this is God's word. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. God's inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. Oh God, would you come? Holy Spirit, would you be present this morning? Would you do your work? You have to do it or we won't understand. You have to shed your light on this word that you inspired or we will remain in the dark. So come, Holy Spirit. Come, Lord, and reveal to us wield this sword that is your word in our hearts to do the work that would be pleasing to you, that would be glorifying to you, and that would bring us much good. We pray this in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. So again, it's just this perfect, it's the ideal psalm of ascent. We start in the depths and we ascend to a place of great, glorious, and certain hope. You've got an outline in your worship folder this morning so you can see where we're going. And now let's start with the guilt. Verses 1 through 3. Now, why was I so convinced after reading this over and over that this is about guilt and it's not just about suffering? Well, just walk through these first three verses with me. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. All right, so I'll give you that. Depths could be a lot of things. We could be in the depths for a number of reasons, right? We could be experiencing suffering. There's all kinds of things. So depths doesn't do it for me necessarily. But the next part, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy, all right? He's not crying out for help. The psalmist has done that plenty. If you flip back through the Psalms of Ascent, we've seen plenty of, um, I don't want to say generic because that sounds bad, but pleas for help. Various situations where we're in trouble, distress, even suffering, yes. And so we cry out for help. That's not what he's crying out for here. He's crying out for mercy. Mercy, not getting what you deserve. Mercy, the opposite of justice, where you get what you deserve deserve mercy all right so there's my first big clue this is about sin it's about guilt verse three if you O lord should mark iniquities if you should be making a list of the ways that i've blown it then i really do need to cry out oh lord don't give me what i deserve the psalmist feels a real sense of guilt And guilt is important for us to talk about this morning because the vast majority of us, I'm convinced, have a problem with guilt. And and I I think the vast majority of us would come down into having one of either two problems about guilt. The first problem is that when I say guilt, 
you start looking around at other people. You're like, oh, it's, it's probably him. Yeah, yeah. I bet she's got a lot of guilt. Yeah, she probably... Oh, you mean me? My guilt? I haven't killed anybody. I haven't robbed a bank. I'm, I'm a fine, upstanding citizen. Let me assure you, there is no one here this morning. There is no one at all for whom these first three verses does not readily apply. Every single one of us can cry out literally and, as a matter of fact, with the psalmist this morning, saying, out of the depths, O Lord, I cry to you, hear my plea for mercy. Don't give me what I deserve. That, that, those two verses from Romans 3 this morning that we used for our confession of sin and have been using all month long, there's no one good There's no one who seeks God. All are guilty before the holy and righteous creator of the universe. And we stand before him. Well, actually, the psalm says we can't stand before him, right? If if he were to count our iniquities, if he were to mark them, if he were to make a list, we would not be able to stand. Because, you see, we're guilty not just of breaking a law or a rule, but of personal offense to the one who gave the law. We've broken it, but we are also guilty of offending the lawgiver. And so for some of you this morning, this is the type of guilt problem you have, is is coming to grips with this, of believing this as a reality, of owning it. Of, of shaking free from this notion of, well, it must be the next guy. Of, of thinking, well, I'm doing better than the next guy, so I must be okay. Friend, you've got a problem with guilt. Now, I think far more of you, far more of us, have a second type of, of guilt problem. Guilt for us is very real. No one has to convince us of it or beat us about the head and shoulders to make us believe it because it keeps us up at night. It haunts us. We feel like we can't move past it. We struggle with despair and feelings of condemnation over it. That was Martin Luther's problem until... His eyes were opened to the beauty and the glory of the gospel. And I can just imagine if he had lived after Charles Wesley and not a couple of hundred years before, Luther, when he understood the gospel and got it for the first time and this weight of guilt was lifted from him, could have sung with Wesley, long my imprisoned spirit lay. Fast bound in sin and nature's night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. 
And see, we'll see this progression through this psalm. This psalm isn't going to leave us hanging with our guilt. It's not going to leave us in a place where we'll be tempted to despair, tempted to wallow in feelings of condemnation and dread. But it ascends up out of that by the power of the gospel because the gospel brings grace. Guilt is real. There's real objective guilt for each and every one of us to deal with, but there is also forgiveness. Verse 4. Let's pick up in verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities. O Lord, who could stand but with you? There is forgiveness. There's guilt that is very real. There is grace that is even more real. All right, let's review our terms again. If mercy is not getting what you deserve, justice is getting what you deserve, then grace is getting what you don't deserve. It's getting the good that you don't deserve. With you, O Lord, there is forgiveness. We're not guilty anymore. In the gospel, we're not guilty anymore. Now, how does this work? How can there be guilt, objective, real guilt, one minute, and no guilt the next? Does God just wink and make it go away? Sweep it under the rug. Say, oh, shucks. I'm sure you didn't mean it anyway. We did. We did. We did mean it. Now, the psalmist certainly, when he wrote this psalm, didn't have the full picture of how this all worked. Right? We have the benefit of that being on this side of the cross. The psalmist may have not had a big picture of how it all worked, but he knew that it did. He was certain that it did and that it would. Forgiveness. But with you, O Lord, there is forgiveness. Now, forgiveness does not come without a great cost, without a great, great price being paid. Um, I've heard uh, Tim Keller preach on forgiveness before, and so I, I borrow some of his thinking and definitely this illustration about forgiveness. Um, when there is forgiveness, there's a cost that's absorbed by someone. He uses an illustration of being at, at a friend's house for a party and lots of people milling about, and, and without realizing it, you have bumped into a table and knocked over a lamp and it's come crashing to the floor. Now, if there is to be forgiveness for this broken lamp that's on the floor, there's going to be a cost that has to be absorbed. If your friend says, don't worry about it, then your friend is either going to open up his wallet and shell out some money to replace the lamp, thereby absorbing the cost, or he may say, eh, That corner of the room can just be dark. I'll live without as much light over there. Another way of absorbing the cost. 
He could be mean and say, no, you oaf, you're going to pay for that. Right? But if there's going to be forgiveness, then there is a cost that is absorbed by someone. So it is with the gospel. So it is with this forgiveness that the psalmist talks about in verse 4. But with you, there is forgiveness. That means a cost has to be absorbed. The cost of our guilt has been absorbed by another. The reason that there is forgiveness in verse 4, the reason that there's mention of plentiful redemption down in verse 7 is because God the Father made a way for our guilt to be absorbed by another. This is at the heart of the gospel. The Father gave the Son to be an atoning sacrifice for our guilt, for our sins. And this is where I think the fear comes in. Did you did you see that? It may have struck you as a bit odd. It has thousands of folks down through the ages, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Now why does it not say that you may be adored or loved or thanked or something? Why does it say that you may be feared? Now, anytime fear is associated with God in the Scriptures, people come running out and instantly try to start softening the edges of that. Oh, well, it says fear, but it really means reverence. Oh, it says fear, but it really means this or it really means that. And that's all well and good, and and that's helpful in a sense to understand what is a difficult concept. But you know what fear also means? It also means fear. The biblical authors didn't choose all those other words. They chose fear. We fear things that are mighty and powerful. The brute force of of a tornado or a hurricane, right? We fear that. Things that are different than we are, we we fear those things. Things that we quite frankly just don't understand, we fear. And so when a great, mighty, powerful one would condescend to sinful, rebellious, otherwise disregarding people. And he would forgive at great personal cost to himself. How can our response to that not be some form of fear? How can we not tremble at that? How do we consider the incarnation and this sacrifice that was made and respond to it and say, huh, well, that's kind of cool. No, that's not our response at all. If it is, I don't think you've really grappled with either guilt or the absorbing of that guilt. 
Because I think fear is a right response. To, to one that's so different from us and to one who shows mercy in a way that we certainly don't display mercy and to one who forgives in a way that we certainly don't forgive. It's hard to comprehend. We don't understand it. That's exactly the kind of thing that we fear. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So there's guilt. There's grace, even grace that would cause us to tremble. And now there's waiting, verses 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. Well, what's all this about? What are we waiting for? Are we waiting for forgiveness? No, I don't think so. Verse 4 said there is forgiveness. Not there will be. I think the forgiveness is already there. What the psalmist is waiting for is for the Lord. The Lord himself is the object of the waiting here. I think we spend a lot of times waiting for the Lord's stuff. I don't know how often we spend waiting for the Lord himself as the thing that we're waiting for, as the thing that we're longing for. But I think when there has been sin and when there has been guilt, we're waiting for the Lord. We're waiting for the restoring of that relationship that has suffered because of our sin, because of our guilt. We're waiting for the Lord, and not passively. We're doing something active, verse 5 says. We're hoping. As we wait, we're hoping in His Word. His Word is the fuel for our waiting. And so what do we find in God's Word that might help fuel our waiting? Well, find out who God is, how He's revealed Himself to us. We find out what he's done, all of his redemptive activity. We find out what he promises to do in the future. And so we find out from his word, he's a gracious and he's a merciful. And he is, yes, throughout the scriptures, he's a forgiving God. I wait and in his word, I hope. We find out what he's done. Well, what has he done? He's made a way. He's given us his son to absorb our guilt to be sacrificed for our sins. What does he promise to do? Well, for those for whom he sent his son to die and pay the penalty for guilt, he's also promised to conform us to his image. Romans eight twenty nine. if you want to reference there. He's going to conform us to his image. See, here's the thing about grace. It is unconditional love and acceptance and pardon. But it's not just that. It's also the promise and the power for change and transformation. Grace accepts us just as we are and refuses to leave us there. See, it doesn't just take away our guilt problem. It takes away our ongoing sin problem problem ever so slowly and gradually does it do that it changes our desires and our want to's God's grace enables us to say no to sin and to say yes to righteousness and so part of the waiting here I think 
is waiting for the Lord to bring that about. Waiting for the Lord to change us and to transform us and to make us more like Christ. And here's why I think that's in view. Here's why I think transformation is in view, and that's part of what we're waiting for. And it's the image that the psalmist uses in verse 6. This repeated phrase, more than watchman for the morning. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning. This is a great image. It's been a long time since I've come across an image in Scripture that is so chock full of good stuff. Let me unpack it a little bit for you. First is the certainty of the thing that you're waiting for. All right. How many times have watchmen waited for the morning and morning didn't come? Never. Okay. Zero per, a zero percent failure rate. Okay. Watchmen wait for the morning. It always comes. The psalmist says that he's waiting for the Lord more than watchmen wait. Now, just because there is great certainty of the thing that we're waiting on doesn't mean that the waiting is necessarily going to be easy. Doesn't mean that it might not cause some impatience to well up within us as we wait for this very certain Thing. I don't know if you've ever been on the night watch for something. I can't stand it personally. Like staying up through the night is the most dreadful thing in the world. Driving through the middle of the night trying to get somewhere, oh, it's awful. It seems like morning will never get there. And you watch the minutes slowly tick by. And so the psalmist is waiting for the Lord more than that. More than watchmen waiting for the morning. And so I think this speaks very much to our transformation and our waiting for the Lord to bring it. We can be certain in God's promise that he will do it. But sometimes, don't you wonder? Lord, is this ever going to improve? Will I ever experience any kind of progress here or victory here change will come but it's often going to be at a pace that is a lot slower than we like now closely related to this so there's great certainty um, but the waiting is sometimes hard closely related to this and i love this image what can watchmen do to ensure the coming of the morning or to hasten its coming I mean, the earth is spinning on its axis. Try to speed it up, you know. Here's the last thing that struck me about this image of of watchmen waiting for the morning. It's the frequency with which watchmen wait for the morning. Every single day. Every single day. It's an ongoing thing. You don't ever graduate past watching for the morning. It's not like you can say, all right, morning's finally here, and that's the last time we'll ever have to do that. (laughs) 
See, Psalm 130 doesn't reveal to us some single one-off experience for God's people. It's not like we're going to ascend out of the depths that one last, well, we will ascend out of the depths that one last time, but it's not in this life. It's the pattern of the gospel. We cry to the Lord from the depths, please don't give me what I deserve. And you know that he's not going to because with the Lord there is forgiveness purchased at a great price that ought to cause us to fear and to tremble. And we wait. More than watchmen for the morning. Lord, come and change us. Please come change us. Please come change us. So there's guilt and there's grace and there's waiting. And at the end of it all, I told you there would be great hopefulness, encouraging, life-changing, ministry-enabling hopefulness, verses 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. See, this is where the grasping of both the reality of our guilt and the beauty and glory of the gospel leads us. It's personally very beneficial to us, right, on an individual level as we individually each deal with the Lord. But it also has a corporate dimension to it, a public dimension that allows us to turn the focus off from ourselves and out to those around us. And to be able to turn to those around us and say, hope in the Lord. There's forgiveness here. There is steadfast love. It's that great Hebrew word, hesed, that is hard to condense down into one definition or one translation, but it's often done steadfast love, but it's, it's faithful, covenant-keeping, never giving up, never stopping, never changing love. There's that with the Lord. There's forgiveness. There is plentiful redemption, right? It would be enough if there were just redemption, but there's plentiful redemption. All kinds of sins, all kinds of people, there is enough where sin abounded, Romans 5, grace much more abounded. There's hope. There's encouragement. He will, verse 8, redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So there's a great promise for the future. And we need that promise. This is a good news, bad news kind of thing. Bad news is we're not done needing his mercy. Bad news is there are more depths for us to ascend up out of and to cry out from, O oh Lord. There are plenty more times for us to realize and appreciate His forgiveness yet again. But the good news is there's plentiful redemption. There's steadfast love. There's love that won't give up. There's love that can't be exhausted. There's redemption, more than we need, plentiful, abounding. And I hope it causes us to fear Him a little bit. I hope it causes us to tremble. Let's pray. Oh Lord.
Thank you for your word. Thank you for the progression of the gospel that we see in your word that takes us from the depths to the glorious and hopeful heights of the gospel. Lord, with you there is forgiveness. And Lord, it ought to cause us to fear. It ought to cause us to tremble because you are so different from us, so other than us, so gloriously good, so wonderfully and faithfully loving. Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and how he has absorbed the cost of our guilt and of our sin. And how he not only absorbs that cost, but promises You promise, O Lord, through the gospel to change us and to not leave us where you found us, but to conform us to the image of your Son. O Lord, you're greatly to be praised. We do so this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us now and sing in response about this?